Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we are so grateful to be joined by professor, historian, and author of 5011 Million Books, uh, Kevin Cruz, who I will turn over to Wajahat for his movie phone introduction. Professor Kevin Michael Cruz is an American historian and professor of history at Princeton University. And his latest book is a collection of essays entitled Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. Uh, thank you for indulging me, as always. <laughs> and I was also told that Professor Cruz, if you say his name in Danish, it's Professor Krause. So I don't know if I said that properly, but uh, I just wanted to say that. I just wanted an excuse to just yell at the microphone and wake up our audience that might have been sleeping. Uh, also, uh, for those of you who don't follow Professor Cruz, do follow him on Twitter. Uh, he engages, unlike other academics, with the masses and tries his best to actually uh, talk down and talk with us peasants and connect the dots. And <laughs> specifically, you know, Professor Cruz, we were talking about the timing of having you on our show, unfortunately, and fortunately, coincides with what's happening in Florida. And for those uh, who haven't followed, Ron DeSantis and Republicans are continuing their attack on this mythical straw man called wokeness. And this now has led them to cancel uh, this AP textbook, uh, AP course, excuse me, on African-American studies. And they're saying that <laughs> African-American studies, uh, it doesn't have value. And when asked to explain, well, what, what, what's so troubling about it? Well, there, there was a section about it that talked about queer theory. And as we know, in Florida, you can't say gay. They tried to pass the Stop Woke Act. They're going after librarians, teachers, corporations that are trying to diversify it. They attack Disney. And librarians specifically are saying that they no longer have control over the books that they put out on uh, the bookshelves. They have to be vetted. And so this is a full-scale assault, not just on our First Amendment, but on our narratives and stories. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, Danielle's a black queer woman. I'm a son of Pakistani Muslim immigrants. And I just think about these black kids in Florida. Oh, our story has no value. 
our story has no merit. Oh, our story should be excised from the American narrative because it uh, offends and, and disturbs a few folks. And as a historian, especially with this book, I was reading chapters of it called Myth America. You talk about, in particular, your chapter, The Southern Strategy, that this is nothing new. And so if, before we really get into what's happening right now, I think it's important for Americans to understand how this has been like a 70-year project of the right wing. Can you just lay the groundwork of how we got here? Yeah, I'll, I'll do about, you know, 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'll give you two and a half minutes. Yeah, okay, great. Fine, fine. Um, yeah, so my piece is on the Southern strategy, which uh, is not something I would have thought would be a myth uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm. This is kind of conventional wisdom. Uh, among historians and political scientists, the general public. I mean, hell, the uh, head of the RNC, Ken Melman, apologized for this during the Bush era. Michael Steele also apologized for it. Republicans used to seem to be, you know, kind of reckoning with this and trying to turn the page. In the Trump era, they've just gone to denying it never happened. I guess to pretend Republicans can't be racist today because they were never racist in the past. Uh, I don't know why. Um, but so what I've done in this piece is to recover uh, the Southern strategy of the 1960s, which is hiding in plain sight. It's all over the Nixon archives and the Goldwater Papers. It's uh, discussed openly uh, in memoirs and at the time by politicians and the press. It's all over the place. But I found out that it's not just there in the 60s where they're trying to make peace uh, with Southern segregationists and win them over uh, by kind of shelving the party's longstanding tradition of support for civil rights and said making peace with segregationists. Uh, it's not just happening in the 60s, it's even before that. Uh, and so in the 50s and even uh, right back to the Dixiecrat Rebellion of 48, Republicans see an opportunity here. They see the, uh, the Democratic Party breaking up over civil rights, and they're going to grab the segregationist part out of, out of the South and build a new majority for the country. Uh, so this has been a longstanding project. You know, no, that you did it in two and a half minutes. It's very impressive. I, well I, done, I, sir. I keep you a clock, man. This is why you teach at Princeton, and I got rejected from Princeton. <laughs> the time trials, the time trials get a lot of people cut. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I have always found really disturbing uh, about American history, and particularly around our politics, is the campaign of erasure, which is something that I think is at the root cause of the Southern strategy. It was at the root cause of Jim Crow. It was at the root cause of not wanting and making it illegal for enslaved Africans to learn to read and write, right? The more that you are, your mind is opened and education is allowed to flow in, the more that you question what is happening around you and to you. And so I, I want to, you know, ask, as a former educator myself, who then went into education policy for a number of years, I have seen it as the key to our liberation, as has many civil rights leaders um, from across movements that have said the very same thing. Is there, do you see, Kevin, some type of opportunity within this really disgusting and tragic obstacle that Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and others who are copycatting, copycatting, what is it? What copycatting <laughs> the behavior of these white supremacists? Is there an opportunity here for educators, for people to say, well, wait a minute, 
we weren't we didn't really know what was happening in, you know, to begin with, because our curriculum has been whitewashed in so many different ways. But now you're going out of your way, mm. right? You're going out, you're going above and beyond uh, in terms of trying to deny people access to any perspective that is outside of white, cis, hetero, Christian uh, male thinking. So do, do you see any potential for there to be an opportunity within all of the obstacles that are being presented and originating in Florida and the Republicans are hoping to nationalize if they were to gain power again in the Senate and in the White House? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to go to your larger point, the role of education here has always been the silver bullet. And African-Americans mm. have known this even before freedom. Uh, uh, but but certainly during the Reconstruction and then during Jim Crow, uh, they knew that this was uh, was a powerful tool. Uh, the sight of uh, free blacks in the South carrying books was akin to the sight of free blacks carrying guns. Uh, that's how the white society saw it. There was a joke that used to make its rounds in the South in the early 20th century about a, a northern visitor who comes down and visits the South. And the southern host picks him up at the railway station. And on their way out, they see two black men. One is asleep on a park bench, and one is studiously reading a newspaper. And seeing these two, the white southerner says, excuse me, walks over and kicks the black man who is reading the newspaper. Mm. And the northerner is confused. Why would you do that? I think you would kick the one who was lazy and sleeping on the job. He goes, he ain't the one we're worried about. Mm. So this has been a touchstone of white supremacy forever. Uh, uh, the realization that education blows up the entire project, right? And as we talk about in, in this book, there are various points along our history in which white supremacists have sought to rewrite the narrative. The most obvious one is the fight over Confederate monuments in the South. Um, you know, the Confederate monuments weren't put up right after the Civil War. No, they were put up largely in the 19-teens and 1920s, and then again in the 1950s and 1960s, precisely when white Southerners were trying to cement white supremacy and Jim Crow mm -hmm. in the South, right? It is an effort to rewrite history. Um, mm. The reimagining of the Civil Rights Movement, right? The civil rights struggle of the 1960s is another one, highly contested, deeply unpopular, challenging to the core of American ideals of democracy, capitalism across the board. Martin Luther King presented a stark challenge to America, and yet he's been sanitized and sterilized and reduced down to one sentence all Republican <laughs> politicians know from uh, the March on Washington mm -hmm. speech. Uh, and that's the only one they seem to know and the only one they think he ever said. He's much the content of your character, Kevin. All I yes. judge you by is the content of your character. That's it. The problem is I think we're judging them by the content of their character now. Um, <laughs> but look, I mean, but, but that's what DeSantis is doing in, in Florida, right? He said, he said, look, he had gave a speech where he said, all we have to do is give the cut and dried history, which is yep. never cut and dried. Hmm. And he says, we should talk about these great Americans uh, who stood up even when it wasn't easy. Okay, some follow-up questions there. Why wasn't it easy for them? Hmm. And why did they have to stand up, right? And once you start to ask those questions, you start to get into the things that they don't want to talk about, about kind of systemic structural racism. Again, things that King talked about during the 1960s, and yet we've erased all that. Linda Gilmore has a piece in our book about the good civil rights protests. We've sterilized and sanitized King and made him seem distant from what's going on today. No, Black Lives Matter today is talking about the same stuff King talked about, structural racism, police brutality. Uh, the dangers of capitalism. It's all there, right? So yes, there is an opportunity today to take this challenge and not take it lying down, but to come back with the facts.
to come back and say, no, look, we've got the record here and you're distorting it. You're the one with an ideological crusade. You're the one with a political agenda here. And it's not the teachers in the classroom who are simply relating facts. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked-about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. And you know, and it, what, you know, you and Daniel are talking about, there's an opportunity, there's a moment to fight back and push back. But throughout American history, there have always been people like us who have tried to push back. And a colleague of yours, a great historian, Carol Anderson, wrote this book called White Rage, uh, where if you haven't read it, you all should read it. And we'll have her on our show one of these days where she talks about, in 200 pages, every single attempt to try to correct the record, not rewrite the record, but add more chapters, Right. To, to progress this country towards this thing called the American dream, where all of us, regardless of our skin tone, uh, or if we have ovaries or not, have a chance at, the, uh, at equality, we have been met with white rage and violence every step of the way, two steps forward, one step back. And so looking at what we're looking at right now with Florida, it, the, the, the kickstart seemed to have been the 1619 Project, right? Mm -hmm. Nicole Hannah-Jones edits this, this New York Times Magazine uh, issue which God forbid says, hey, you know what? Uh, let's start the history in 1619 when enslaved people were brought here against their will. And let's just add a chapter. One would assume people would say, oh, well, this is interesting. This so thoroughly rattled white supremacy in the GOP that they unleashed this barrage for the past three or four years. We're going to go after a DEI. We're going to go after CRT. We're going to ban 1619. How dare you say 1619? I mean, Talk about the world's most fickle, weak snowflakes, right? And so the question I have is, every time that we try to fight back, white rage meets us with violence and intimidation. We're seeing it right now. Yeah. What can and what should white colleagues, especially your white colleagues right now, do to help people like me and Danielle, who, you know, we do what we do. We get called crazy and we get exhausted. 
And I feel like we're living like Groundhog's Day all over again in 2023. Well, I mean, you know, speaking for myself and I was somebody involved in the 1619 project from the magazine version and and now in the the book version, um, the blowback to that was really remarkable. Uh, My piece of the 1619 project was taken directly out of my first book. And, you know, 15 years ago, God, I'm old, um, but taken out of that book and, and, and built on scholarship that was, you know, standard in the field. And yet the reaction to this was stunned, you know, That's as if amazing. I made something up entirely rather than simply replicating what an entire field has done. Urban historians have talked about, uh, my piece was about uh, traffic in Atlanta and the way in which segregation shaped the highway system. This is a standard old story. When I proposed this for 1619, I almost felt embarrassed because I was like, well, we all know this story, right? I guess I could mm-hmm. talk about this thing we all know. And yet the reaction of the public is, is one of shock. And it just shows the disconnect between what the general public thinks they know and, and what academics have. And that's, again, the motivation of this whole book. Uh, the Smith America book has been to address that. What can white scholars do? Well, I've always taken it as uh, I, I've got every privilege in the book. I'm a straight, white, um, cishet, Christian, Southern man. I've got everything. I'm, I'm at a private university and I've got tenure. I've got no excuse not to wade into this, right? Mm. And I'm not alone on that. And I have lots of colleagues, many of whom don't have, don't check all those boxes of privilege that I have who are engaged in this too and are pushing back. And um, I think the, the the beauty of our moment is that for however much uh, chaos and confusion is being spread out there, especially on social media, those same forums give us a lot of us the ability to push back, right? So it's become a two-way argument. And it can be frustrating. It can seem, uh, I often feel on Twitter, I'm you know, mopping back the ocean. Uh, and what's the point? Uh, but, but you know, I'd rather do that than, than sit on my hands. Uh, and if it's, if it's futile, it's futile. But I'm, I'm going to go down swinging. And, and luckily, a lot of scholars are too, because uh, this matters. Um, this isn't just some academic discussion uh, about the past. As you guys know, um, uh, history informs the policy. Uh, the past mm. informs the present. Um, what we think we were able to do or had done in the past shapes our sense of what we can do in the future. So uh, I think this is vitally important. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm lucky that uh, I'm not alone in that. You know, one of the things I think that also is incredibly troubling and, and what you say and, and what you lift up is that none of this is new, mm. right? None of, none of these things are new. I think that the only thing that may be new in this moment is the technology that's being used, the disinformation and how wildly it's able to be spread. One of the things that Waj and I talk about on, on this show and, you know, and in every sphere that we're in is about the responsibility of journalists in this moment, right? The responsibility of those who have the cameras, who have the microphones to tell the truth. And so my, and, and the fact is that they don't, right? Because this is yet another space that has been corrupted and corroded with capitalism and the desire for ratings and this mythical idea of both sides that you need to present both sides. And there was a time when, when we were speaking about white supremacy uh, in this country that you didn't also turn the microphone phone to the white supremacist and say, well, how do you feel about being called a white supremacist? How do you feel about racism? You know, there was a time when those people and that ideology was being pushed to the side. Mm. Now it is center stage. It's being given prominent positions on CNN. It's being given jobs and, you know, and, and millions of dollars in podcasts. So my question, you know, to you, Kevin, is like, where do you see or what should be done about the marriage between 
folks like yourself and the scholarly work and the history that is real, right? This is not made up. This is, this is being just recorded and presented in ways that are digestible to people now. What, where do you see the marriage between those that have always researched and analyzed and looked for the truth and those that are supposed to have the job to present that to the people outside of elite institutions? Yeah. Well, I, I will say, look, you know, not all journalists, um, hashtag, um, uh, are, are, <laughs> are, you, know, I mean, you guys are, are a good example, but the 1619 Project, the original version, a lot of the folks in there were, were journalists, Jamel Bowie, uh, Wesley Lowry, lots of folks like that, who I found are incredibly well-read in history. Uh, and lots of folks like that. Uh, I've, I've gotten to know, especially uh, through Twitter, some really sharp reporters who really do have a sense of the country's history and really do put it into effect. I mean, incredibly well-read, um, put some historians to shame. Um, that said, there is certainly a trend in the public uh, especially in the, the kind of the White House uh, uh, um, um, press corps of knee jerk both sides coverage, which is just not warranted. There is not there are not two equal sides to everything. And, and as mm-hmm. you said, this was not the case when I was researching the stuff in the 50s and 60s. They weren't going out to interview Klansmen at diners, right? They weren't trying to understand what their perspective was. They understood certain things were out of bounds, right? And I think in our own time, and I think you're right that it's largely because of the media, a lot of these things that used to be on the far right fringe have been mainstream, right? Because the technology is there. The John Birch Society had newsletters that they put out, maybe a couple hundred thousand people, I don't know the numbers, but it was a small group and you could dismiss them. Now these people have Twitter platforms and a variety of things, and they've got their entire cable news networks devoted to um, spreading these things. It's out there, right? And because it's out there, they now argue, well, we've got to deal with it. We've got to deal with it easily. But I think one of our essays in the book actually speaks to this this issue, and it's Larry Glickman's piece on white backlash. Mm. And in this piece, he notes that all too often reporters talk about white backlash as this thing that just happens. It's like a natural force. It comes out of nowhere. (laughs) It's like a hurricane or a tornado. (laughs) It's the fault of the liberals who push this, right? Black activists did Black Lives Matter and it sparked a white backlash or Obama passed healthcare and that created a white backlash. No, the people in the white backlash created that themselves, right? They have agency. They have decisions. They can make choices. They're not innocent victims swept up by events, right? Who had no Economic anxiety. Yeah, right? Oh, economic anxiety. No, they made decisions, right? Treat them like you would any other social movement where they've got agency and they've got motives and they've got uh, an agenda, right? And that's the way in which they need to do this. And I I see it all too often. It's gotten to the point now where political reporters are crafting their coverage with an imagined white backlash in mind, right? Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, how's this going to, well, no, this isn't going to play well in the Midwest. Your job isn't to forecast the results, it's to describe what's going on, right? And describe it really with a real sense of the facts, a real sense of proportionality, a real sense of what's actually going on. It's not to handicap the horse race. Tell us what's actually going on. And, you know, this manufactured outrage, I think, is very important because people don't realize that there's right wing money behind it. There's a right wing ideology. There's a cadre, an incestuous cadre of an ecosystem that has been doing this since Brown versus Board of Education, like the Southern strategy was unleashed deliberately to win over aggrieved whites to bring them over to the Republican Party. Lee Atwater, 
that uh, famous Republican strategist openly said, you can't say the N-word anymore. We realize that that's out of fashion. So now we say stuff like busing and states' rights. And in, in your book, you have the essay where you talk about Reagan went all in. George W. Bush then courted evangelical Christians. Trump took it on steroids. And you know the rest of us, oftentimes, Daniel and myself, people of color, when we call it out and we give the warning signs, and we, we do a joke on the show where if we were Paul Revere, instead of being seen as heroes, they'd be like, look, it's Paul Revere. Shoot him. Shoot. Like, we'll die. They'll get, we'll get shot off the horse. And they're like, whew, thank God we got Paul Revere. You know, we've been warning yeah, they, folks. They would, they would have complained you were in the streets protesting and making noise. Yeah. Right. Obstructing traffic. He, right. he, here's we a fine, been, Paul the, Revere. The horse would have been fine. I was going to say the horse would have been fine. <laughs> Save the horse from Paul Revere. Uh, you know, but we talked about the rise of fascism on the show. We talked about the rise of white nationalism. We talked about the mainstreaming of Marjorie Taylor Greene. So many of our colleagues dismissed us. You're being hysterical. You're being reactionary. Well, look at Florida. They're banning books. They're banning math textbooks. They're banning AP African-American studies. They're not even hiding it anymore. And so we talked about the past. We talked about the present. But as a historian and as an academic, paint for us and our listeners that if this goes unchecked, Kevin, what's the next step? If they get power, what are they going to do against librarians, educators, teachers, anyone who opposes them, school boards? Map it out for us. Well, I mean, we've we've seen this in the past, right? And that we've had fights over this stuff um, uh, since the beginning of of well, not the beginning of the country, but but certainly throughout the twentieth century, right? We had fights over evolution in textbooks in the nineteen twenties. We had fights over uh, patriotism in the nineteen forties. We had fights over um, um, uh, the politically correct uh, pushback of the nineties. We oh, had yeah. fights over multiculturalism in the nineteen seventies. And these fights can get ugly. Uh, that fight in West Virginia in the 1970s over a bunch of textbooks, people were getting shot. They were blowing up school buildings. I mean, Jesus. this stuff can really get out of hand. This is this is not simply something academic. And we've seen this uh, take place all over the the country with, with these these fights over school boards, uh, sometimes over COVID and masking, but I think over the content of these books too. Um, and so it can become incredibly contentious. Uh, luckily, what we found is that in most of these fights before, they overreach. Uh, it blows up in their faces. And, and I think DeSantis, personally, I, I'm not trying to offer him any political advice, but I think he's walking a dangerous plank here. Mm. Uh, and, and when people start to feel uh, that this is across the line, and I think uh, the movement against uh, LGBTQ, but also against uh, African-American studies here, they say it's about being too woke, but they don't have these complaints about other things. Uh, I think that's going to hurt him. Uh, you know, if he's going to have a national run, he's going to have to hope there's not high black turnout in a lot of swing states. This is sort of guaranteed to, to bring that out, this, this, this sort of uh, campaign. But if it does succeed, if it doesn't blow up in its face, it, it's incredibly dangerous. Um, uh, we've seen this, uh, maybe not in America, but certainly other countries, where censorship and book bans uh, uh, really uh, are a key part of the rise of authoritarianism uh, and uh, a key tool to the maintenance of fascism. Uh, so that's a really stark thing. I, I think we fool ourselves and we say it can't happen here. It mm. certainly can happen. Uh, and that's an all the more reason for all of us to remain vigilant against it. You know, is that, Kevin, then, the this is the backlash to American exceptionalism and that myth and lie, 
right? right? Which is that it couldn't possibly happen here because we're better than everybody else, right. right? And so this idea that we just kind of walk through the world with these rose-colored glasses about mm. how we dictate how things will turn out in other countries and how we have the power and the ability to do so, like... Why, why is it that even as we are seeing all of this, right, I, I've been doing multiple shows on the rise in our collective anxiety, right, that people are not crazy about, you know, every time your phone goes off, there's like a jolt in your heart every time, you know, that, that people are, are, are hopped up on so much Xanax these days, the numbers have tripled over the course uh, of, of the 2020s so far that we've been living in. And it is this feeling that something is not right. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. And so, and that, and that I feel powerless in terms of fixing it. So I'm going to numb myself or I'm going to try and shut out the noise. And so my question is like, I feel like we're at the precipice of American exceptionalism and that biggest myth being broken open in a way where more people, not just people of color who have known that it has been a lie mm -hmm. since the beginning of time, but that white people are waking up to this. But is do you see there then an impetus to wanting to do something about it, right? Like you're talking about the possibility of, oh, we've seen a pattern throughout history that there's an overreach and there is uh, a blowing up that will happen. But is I'm worried that the blowing up is just our democracy and what's mm -hmm. left of it, right? As opposed to the blowing up of, you know, uh, of all of this in a Ron DeSantis or in a Trump or in a Kevin McCarthy's face. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is a real danger. Uh, and to, to go back to the question, I mean, the, the American exceptionalism is, is the first myth we tackle in the book. My colleague, David Bell, who's a brilliant French historian, came in and tackled this from the outside. It's a great piece because he points out a lot of things I think a lot of Americans don't know. First of all, the term American exceptionalism used to not be good. It was America was exceptional because it was different. It didn't follow the rules. And it's a, an idea that gained fame in the hands of Joseph Stalin. Uh, who was trying to figure out why America hadn't followed the natural progression to communism that other countries he thought would. Right, I, and um, I did not I did not know that until I read that chapter, which is why history matters. I'm like, wow, exactly right. Stalin's yeah, the one who coined it. Yeah. And then, but then it gets picked up by someone on the other fringe, uh, Newt Gingrich uh, in, in the 80s and 90s. And it's Gingrich who turns it into the meaning we have today, which is that America is exceptional. America is not just not different, but better, right? Mm. And the, the rules don't apply to America, right? Uh, and this is, again, a distortion of the way things uh, uh, had previously been understood. Uh, Reagan does it, too. Uh, Reagan likes to say America is a shining city on the hill, the, the, the which beacon, in his mind yeah. means we're an example to the world. Well, as my colleague Dan Rogers showed in a great book on this, that's not what that phrase meant originally. To be a city on the hill meant you were exposed. Everyone mm. can see you and judge mm. you and see your failures, right? And so it was, it was, watch out. It wasn't that we're inspiring. It's everyone's looking at us and judging us. Watch out. 
But in Gingrich's hands, this American exceptionalism became this great thing, and the rules don't apply. America's bigger and better. I think a lot of us, and this goes across the political spectrum, a lot of Americans believe that. Well, I think we got a jolt to the system in the last five, six years with Trump coming to power. We used to look, oh, look at these third world countries with these crackpots in charge. Well, we had a crackpot. Uh, with the uh, the insurrection of a capital. Oh, these other countries have coups. They don't happen here. Well, we almost have one here, right? Mm. But I think we're realizing uh, that as much as you may love America, as much as you may think America's great, sometimes the rules that, that take place in other countries, the events that take place in other countries can happen here. And, and we need to be aware of that. And also the, the racism uh, implicit in the Newt Gingriching of American exceptionalism, because in that chapter, which I read, uh, I forgot. Sometimes it, you forget, like, Gingrich is so odious that you get reminded of how terrible he is. Like he said, we, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing from the, the chapter of the book. Um, uh, Haiti has, you know, we don't have to learn anything from Haiti, but Haiti can learn something from us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he picks upon these countries with majority people of color. Like, what are we going to learn from these peasants? They should learn from us. And it goes back to the whole concept of the superior white man, the white Christian man that has fertilized this land and given forth the world democracy. And we also have the most people incarcerated than any other country. And we also had the Civil War, which is still the most disastrous war. And in talking about what makes us exceptional, the Civil War, historians have been talking about this, Kevin, for the past two years, especially with the rise of Trump, with, with the coup, that we might witness a cold civil war in this country, right? And regardless mm -hmm. of how this plays out, whether hopefully, and I agree with you that dissent is will blow up on a national stage, but suppose he might win through cheating. How can we sustain this country where, you know, Daniel and I have talked about this for a couple of years, where I believe we've lost about 25 to 30% of this country Forever. thanks to right-wing disinformation, mm -hmm. at least for our lifetimes. I, I don't mm -hmm. think we'll ever give the, get them back. They live on Earth 3. Mm -hmm. How does a multiracial democracy survive when we have lost about 30% of this country and increasingly, a majority of those, that minority, believes that violence is necessary to fight back against the rest of us for trying to replace them. As a historian, are you at all worried that we might be heading to this cold civil war, or are we just being reactionary? I don't think you're being reactionary. I mean, I, mean, I will say, look, as an historian, my training's in hindsight. I try not to make predictions about the future. Uh, but I will say, if you feel like a quarter of the country's lost now, they've always been lost. Mm. Uh, when Nixon resigned, uh, a quarter of the country thought was still approved him uh, when he resigned from Watergate. Uh, John Rogers, the um, uh, screenwriter, had a great uh, piece in the Bush era, called it the crazification factor. Crazification. So you can look at, at, at any issue, and there will be 27% of America uh, that embraces the crazy position. It's amazing you see this number come up time and time again. See, I'm not crazy. So I'm not crazy with that 25 to 30 percent number, oh, folks. No, I think you're. I think you're dead on. And he got this by looking at the uh, the Obama Allen Keys Senate race in 2004, and he was like, clearly, if you voted for Keys, you were crazy. Um, uh, you can disagree with that, but uh, I think it's a good standard. But so we've had this this all along, and so what that says is, yeah, there's a sizable minority uh, that is really off the rails here, uh, uh, and what we've got to do is the rest of us have to stick together. Um, uh, the, 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 the sane majority uh, needs, to, uh, need, needs to make common cause. And this has been, if you look at where authoritarian uh, politics have come up in other nations, um, it's always been when the other people split up, mm. yeah. when the other side fractured, right? Um, Weimar Germany, 
all the left center folks were fighting, right? And it gave a room for, for the Nazis to come in. Other countries followed the same pattern, right? So a, as much of a united front, you're not going to get everyone uh, in on this, but as much of a united front on the center to left is really important um, to stand guard against that, to realize that as much of a disagreement, if you're a socialist, you might have with a liberal, a liberal with a socialist, uh, that you're going to disagree on certain things, but on certain basic democratic principles and norms and safeguards, you got to stick together, right? And that's the key to making sure that that uh, minority doesn't become, you know, a plurality. You know, the thing that keeps like troubling me in in my mind, I'm I'm going back to the first question that I asked you about the the opportunity inside of the obstacle uh, that is being presented to us right now, and because we're in media and everything is about framing and everything is about selling, right? That's at the end of the day, that's what we're all trying to do. We're selling ideas instead of Kellogg's. At the same time though, I, I'm, I'm wondering, Kevin, do you think that there is a reframing of how we are talking about the 1619 Project, the attacks on Black AP curriculum, the attacks on on the LGBTQ community, and don't say gay. Is Is there a way for us to reframe that the teaching of this history, because what the right has done is said that you're teaching children to hate America, right? It goes back to the idea that we just talked about around American exceptionalism and where that was birthed from and how we understand it, how it is also now ingrained in our patriotism, that our patriotism is really about us believing as Americans that we are better than everybody else, right? It's the idea of make America great again and all of these things. And so I'm wondering that for those of us who are on the actual right side of history, is there a reframing to be done that it isn't about, again, teaching kids to hate America, but it's about showing them how far we've come and how far we can continue to go? Because I don't hear anyone saying, as we're fighting about this, it's like, no, we need to learn. We need to learn about the, the, the true origins and the real origins and all of these things. It's like, can we talk about it as, look at how far we have come as yeah. this very young yeah. nation and where we can continue to go if we understand ourselves in a way that is authentic and real to everyone who's been involved in this American project. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I mean, mm-hmm. look, and this has, been a, this has been a through line in American history. America, in my own personal opinion, America is great, not because it was born great, but because it's constantly working to make itself mm-hmm. better, right? The founding fathers, Set down the Constitution and then immediately started amending it with the Bill of Rights, right? Lincoln talked about what? A more perfect union. We're not perfect already, but we're going to get there. We're going to get better, right? And all these changes we've made throughout time have been an effort to expand the circle of what counts as an American, right? And to broaden our democracy. The Voting Rights Act, which has sadly been under attack and uh, rolled back in recent years. It was really the moment in which America finally became a full democracy um, in which everyone was allowed to, to participate and, and brought it in. So we've steadily expanded over time. We've gotten better and better. And so when we learn about that, that's how I see it, is that things have gotten better. My kids learned about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. in second grade. And they didn't, I, I find this so weird when I hear people say, oh, we read these stories about segregation and my kids felt bad because the white people in the story were racist. 
if your kids are identifying with the racists in these stories, come on, you may need to have some conversations at home because my kids just identify, they empathize with the people who are the subjects of the story and they understood that things had gotten better. And that's not because I did like some, you know, crazy liberal homeschooling. It's just, I think a natural default setting for a human being. So if you're coming away from this thinking, <laughs> oh, they're talking about the clan, that's us. I think you've got some real issues to deal with. But, but so the larger story here is one of, of, I think, constant improvement and constant perfection and a reminder that American history isn't, as DeSantis insists, cut and dry. American history is a series of debates and conflicts and disagreements. And so when I teach my students about all these struggles we've had in the past, I find it helps them realize this moment we're living in, as bleak as it might may seem, mm. as confusing as it may seem, it's been bleak in the past. It's been confusing in the past. And that's part of what we do. We, we, we fight our way through to a better future, right? And, and they've done it in the past. You can do it again. We're still here. We're still fighting. We're trying our best to expand and stretch this country to add more chapters, add more protagonists, add more stories. Uh, I have hope. Danielle has a mustard seed of hope. Uh, <laughs> she's a cynic of the group. But uh, I want to thank you, uh, Professor Cruz, for actually being one of those few uh, elite academics who actually shares this platform and connects the dots and isn't arrogant and obnoxious. We need more folks like you, especially now that teachers and librarians and educators are under assault. I recommend everyone pick up your new book, a collection of essays called Myth uh, America. Uh, historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. And be sure to follow you on Twitter. And I believe your, what is your Twitter account, sir? Kevin M. Cruz. Cruza. Cruiser. Sorry, I had, had, to, had to do it again. Come back anytime. Yes, it was a pleasure. thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahid Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.